Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I have a special guest with me, Jesse Morrison. Jesse, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. Really <laughs> excited to be on this podcast. My name is Jesse Morrison. I'm currently the Chief Analytics Officer of a company called Enjoin CDI, do mid-revenue cycle healthcare. And being the Chief Analytics Officer, everything I do from a daily basis is software development, AI, machine learning, and database management. So everything in between. Wow. Yeah, this is going to be a great discussion. Um, tell us about your career and education background. Yeah, this was this is maybe is not as exciting. I, I started out as a business administration in an area, business administration, because I wasn't exactly, I think like most people, not exactly sure what I wanted to do. And I never thought I'd go into software development or even be in that realm. But the more that I went through, I started out in a lot of different ways going through um, every, well, just for my early career, I was involved in logistics and then warehousing and that moved on. And as it came around, I finally went into healthcare almost on a whim uh, based on some suggestions from my wife. I mean, if she hadn't pushed me towards it, I wouldn't have gone to it. And that led me to getting a uh, my MBA, so my master's of business, of business administration. Whenever I went that path, I started questioning what else can I add to? Because I loved math and I was always doing things that was very heavy whenever it came to analytics, um, statistical analysis, and doing strategic plans whenever I was a part of a healthcare system. And because of that, I just got more and more heavily involved in statistics. And you can't get into statistics without learning. A programming language. I mean, Python, R, and several others that you you, you almost can't go um, down the path without learning some language. And as I did that, it led me towards software development. And then that got me deeper in analytics and how to develop systems um, for data warehousing even, and then created my own company. And here I am now. I work for another company that uh, integrated all of my, the, the intellectual properties that I built as a part of that first company that I started. So... That's a, that's the rough cut, five minute, <laughs> where I came from. What's your analysis of the healthcare sector right now from an analytics perspective? Healthcare, what interested me about it is that it has probably and arguably some of the most detailed analytics available um, data repositories. We got to think from the federal level, whenever you have Medicare and how widespread and the kinds of details that are collected on individuals every year that are engaged in any form of healthcare. I mean, the types of data that's derived on individuals and stored is just sweeping large. It's, it's hard to even imagine just how much there is that's out there. And so it, it's almost daunting. And in healthcare, there's a problem because part of it is a lot of it is private, you know, PHI, whenever it comes to it, private, private healthcare information and anything that's associated with healthcare, there's a lot of protections around it, and rightfully so. So it makes it a little difficult to connect the dots between, well, data points. Uh, data integration is very limited in healthcare. So it's this daunting, you have tons of data, probably more than any other industry whenever it comes down to it, but at the same time, there's not really good ways to connect all of that data that you have available to you. And you have data sources available that are public and federal 
state level with Medicaid, other programs, social. There's all sorts of data. There, there are data sources on almost every level of the political spectrum, as well as privatized data sources that exist that are very well developed in healthcare. But once again, very few are integrated. So the state of healthcare analytics, whenever I got into it, and even now, is very infantile in a lot of ways. There are plenty of things that are amazing that have been developed in healthcare analytics, the types of things that are done with claims, processing payment uh, claims. So whenever somebody receives care, how you get paid for the care, processing a claim to an insurance provider, the companies that have been around for a while that take that type of information and pull out uh, trend analysis as well as latch it onto other sources of data to determine exactly, they call it things like longitudinal analysis, where you're really looking over um, the span of care in a, a whole new way of, you may have seen four different doctors in four different states, been able to combine all that together and say where you were when uh, is a very interesting concept. But even though you can do those things, a lot of those companies don't have a very good way of making it applicable to the healthcare providers. So there's also silos whenever it comes to analytics in who is doing what and for what reason. And usually the healthcare providers have a very different style of analytics than the companies that exist in the innovation realm of analytics in healthcare. So it's, it's very different. I mean, you see that in some other industries, but it seems very siloed in healthcare. Yeah, there's a lot of legal red tape around everything and that, that just inherently stifles innovation. It also increases cost. You know, the more red tape, the more expensive it is. So there's a lot that's built into analytics that just becomes assumed costs just for integration. I mean, you talk about some of the smallest connections that you can make between a clinic and a hospital that are in the same uh, network. And all of a sudden you're talking $20,000 to make one connection and then $3,000 a year for annual fees. And it's, it's, they're difficult costs to really get a hold of and not spiral out of control and then sometimes you get that whole why are we doing this what's the point in this after you get a three to five years down the road and you're not seeing any cost containment or any real benefits from some of the decisions that are made it becomes really a should we continue this path so i've seen a lot of times where people will integrate data or create these neat systems that are very expensive, very well set up, but then they just lose traction entirely because they don't really have a value being pulled out. There's no real concrete value that you can attach to them. It's, you know, in marketing, I would, I would assess it like this in the terms of whenever you can, it's beautiful whenever you can put an ad up through, you know, Google ads or anything like that, and you can actually track back who clicked what and the reasons for it and the keywords even searched, things like that, AdWords, and you can track that back and determine the value of a campaign. Well, in healthcare, you don't have those attaching a person to analytics, the, that pay-per-click or whatever you want to call it. It's, it's so hard to track those things that they tend to get lost in the budget and you see them get on the chopping block within three to five years. Those types, those, the efforts just, they get cut pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And I can see an, a kind of resistive element uh, to introduce marketing in the healthcare space because there, it just welcomes conflicts of interest that aren't 
necessarily for the best, right? Like you you wouldn't necessarily want a hospital to incentivize somebody to come to the hospital, right? But in marketing, we're incentivizing somebody to come to use our product. So there is like a natural kind of resistance there. Yeah, it's, it's very funny. Um, I've heard some of the best CEOs of hospitals in the country, they'll say things like, if we're doing our job right, we'll put ourselves out of business. And I tend to agree with that sentiment whenever it comes to healthcare. If we're doing everything perfectly, well, then we, the people shouldn't be in the hospital. Of course, that's an impossibility, but that's the idea. The sentiment is if we could make it that way, we would. So you're right. It's this conflict that's strange, too, because we know that things are going to occur where individuals are going to be injured or trauma, other things, you know, just old age life events occur where you can't escape receiving some form of health care. But at the same time, do you really want that to be your, oh, I can't wait to go to You're right. St. Thomas <laughs> Hospital so that 50% I can... 50% off uh, an overnight yeah. stay. So we can, <laughs> we can go crazy. <laughs> just that's why you don't see like the coupon there's no coupons that get sent out or anything like that <laughs> never seen anything like that uh usually you see these they're really a beautiful the marketing that i've seen and it requires a lot of analytics and synthesis just synthesizing sentiment analysis and what people are actually in tune with which i've done a lot of in healthcare as well is getting that uh, uh i'll call them market profiles and there's psychographic profiling that's done sometimes in line with it that deals with analytics to determine if you're going to do any type of mailer that's generalized trying to get people to understand your mission and that's that's a unique kind of uh, branching that happens between analytics and marketing especially in healthcare is is really instead of communicating hey this product is amazing why don't you come try it out or anything like in the elaboration likelihood met method or model it's nothing like that it's usually a communication about mission or values or why we are here because we want to support your family in time whenever times are hard whenever grandma has the heart attack we're here to support you. You're a part of our family. And you'll hear things like that. And it makes it more about the environment and the mission and the values of the organization being believed in. So brand becomes almost everything in the healthcare world. It's almost all brand awareness and brand campaigns. That's mainly what I see is brand campaigns. And they're all driven by that kind of perspective. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you you would want to focus on just maintaining that positive brand image in your consumer's mindset. Being a chief analytics officer, you look at analytics not just for marketing, but across the business. So what other um, kind of areas strategically do you like to answer questions about using analytics besides marketing? I think some of these get into a whole realm of just hobby things that I enjoy to use analytics for, and some of them are actually real-life applicable. As far as just the hobby, whenever it comes to analytics, some of the amazing things that you can do with it are being able to create recognition or rule-based software that allows you to trigger emails to yourself or allows you to do things that whenever you see certain types of or I should say, whenever you have something that you want to monitor and you want to keep a close eye on it, but you want to put rules on whenever something is in or out of a standard or balance that you're coming up with, standard deviation kind of terminology, whenever something seems to be outside of the norm, doing things like shooting yourself an email or 
And it really comes into handy whenever you're dealing with uh, fun things. But more life applicable, job applicable is I have a lot of software that's been developed that just deals specifically with market prediction analysis. And it specifically, uh, I manage my own retirement accounts. And so to do that and to make sure I'm not spending just gobs of time doing some of those things. I like to have messages that get sent to me based on market conditions and predictive factors that are just statistically laid out. And whenever they come outside of the norm or whenever they go right into a position to where I know they're right where I want them to be, it shoots me a message, get a little text message on my phone, and then five seconds later, I've dealt with it and can set it down. So there's there's a lot of just good personal things that you can do with uh, analytics. It's kind of like that old sentiment that I'll call it an old sentiment now, but whenever I was 15, 16, everybody used to say, everybody needs to learn how to program. Everybody needs to learn how to program. And I feel like I'm one of those people who now says, everybody needs to know about how to perform some basic statistical analysis. Not, 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 not really deep, but you need, because everything's based on it. Cryptocurrency, <laughs> get ready. You're going you're gonna to go through a whole lot of math. You know, if you actually want to understand cryptocurrency and how blockchains work, uh, you, you start to move towards things like driverless cars. Okay, autonomous cars. That's all based on AI. And a lot of it has to do with decision making recognition software that requires an analysis to be performed. And a lot of that analysis requires some pretty high level math to be performed. It's almost impossible to get. I mean, math has always been a part of everything, but it's becoming more so it feels like to me some of the advanced statistical concepts are being applied in unique ways that are not just going to go away they're going to be here i think they're going to be here to stay yeah having advanced computing and decision making and algorithms along with um input of data in base in close to real time is uh something that we have now in a very efficient compressed uh form so that allows us to put these little microchips in in everything and uh, to make, you know, everything super smart. And there is just endless opportunities um, because nothing was really built with that kind of quote-unquote smart technology in the past. There was no, like, ubiquitous data collection and feeding into different, um, you know, data lakes. There's, you know, like like we have now, where, you know, it feels like there are so many different, I exist in so many different databases for my behavior, every single service I use. And, um, and so with that data collection, everything kind of gets an upgrade in terms of the decision making that can be made relative to that, that product or service. Yeah. And some of it almost makes you paranoid. Uh, but all of it is meant for the, really all of it is meant for the betterment of the consumer for the most part. I mean, that's the point of a lot of this stuff. I was recently driving my car, in fact, and I've got a newer vehicle, and it told me, I was. I told my wife, I'd look over at my wife and say, I am really sleepy today. Now, it's, it does not have a microphone in my car. I actually had to look up how it does this, but the car records how close you're getting to um, both lines while you're driving, so how much you're going back and forth, and if it's out of the norm of your sequence in driving for the past, since you've been on the road. And so all of a sudden it came up with a warning. It told me driver may be sleepy and actually told me that. And I was like, 
you are correct. <laughs> and I looked over at Mary and I was like, if we weren't so close to ha- home, that's my wife, I was like, if we weren't so close to home, I'd pull over and let you drive because it's really creepy that the car knows this. But it's just, that's a statistical concept. Now, if my, if my uh, grandfather would have been in the car, he would have been like, this car needs to be, we need to, we need, we got to find a different car, you know, because it's just a little <laughs> bit too, <laughs> it's a little bit too creepy. Um, but that, that that's the weird thing is that it's connected to everything. I've got friends in agriculture and you talk about the statistical analysis they perform to be able to determine what your soil content is. And you think somebody in agriculture, you, you, the science of agriculture amazes me because of the soil samples that they have to keep up with, some of the ways that they actually track weather patterns and the meteorological, meteorological uh, science that they have to be involved in. It's incredible the type of things that they do and have to be involved in to plant corn and wheat. You know, you think that's just such a simple, simple concept, but it's everything has just been ramped up. Like I said, it's 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 not that it's meaningless. Just let's measure things more to measure things more. It is a science of increasing productivity, the capacity to be able to do more. And then there's also just a lot of. It eases the mind of the consumer in a lot of ways that we just don't even think about. In, in fact, ergonomics is really built around this. You know, consumer products that deal with ergonomics is all about. How can we design something so that it most likely fits our users in the greatest way possible? The norm, the statistical norm. And as a side story, I used to have a friend. I was training him whenever I was in a warehouse. He was a basketball player. He was over seven foot. And this guy was just, I mean, he was just a monster of a man. And his hands were so big that a normal keyboard, you know, you don't think about it, but the way that normal keyboards are designed, the distance between the keys, even on a mechanical keyboard, they're pretty much the same on all keyboards. I had to get him a special keyboard. Now, it was a cheap one. It was only like 20 bucks, but it had massive, it was this, it was a large key. It was about two times what a normal keyboard is, and it was meant for elderly people to be able to see the keys and be able to pick keys. But he used it like a normal keyboard. And so after he left, he was like, can I take this with me? I'm like, yeah, you can take my paid for it. You can take it with you, of course. Yeah, that's so nice. So that's a consumer that was kind of because of statistical modeling, because we, well, and and this was before statistical modeling. It was just based on the average hand. Um, And uh, we, we, I guess that hasn't changed very much. So the consumer market for keyboards just addresses that standard kind of hand uh, size and um, there's like kind of small niche providers that uh, they're like you know we could probably sell to this market of two percent of people that you know are above or or point one percent of people who are above seven feet I'm sure it's a tiny number but there's a market there and uh, if it's big enough there's a little you know a, a little little bit of business you can do Yes, yeah, the fun thing is, does your product adhere to the, the norms and standards of the market, or does it appeal to the niche? And that really can only be determined if you've got some amount of market analysis that is combined with statistical representation in data collection. So, mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So I want to move on uh, to starting the formula for starting a business. When you have an idea, how do you determine if that idea is worth taking another step on and how do you take that to an implementation so i i love this question because i get to answer it like i know all of the answers here but (laughs) the truth be told is anytime that you're starting a business there's this secret 
unknown formula of whenever passion for something has to meet the demand in the market. And sometimes the demand is pretty much unknown. And whenever it is, whenever there's no company like it, no service that's been provided similar to it before, sometimes it can be a complete unknown, and those are the largest gambles. But most commonly, the ones that I've been involved with, that I see a reason to move forward with, in fact, I'm just, I'm just about to help another business get started that's along these lines, is where someone has a passion. They're, they don't have a business plan together. They're not really a business-type person. And those are the kinds of individuals that usually, uh, in my experience, have been the ones that are better at maintaining and creating solid businesses over a long period. They're not the ones who start out and they, they, and they hand you a business plan and they go, this is my business plan. And they, that, The individuals who usually hand you a business plan first tend to be concerned about making money before they're concerned about customers or what their product actually is. People with a passion tend to care about so much the customer or the service or the product that if they perfect that and they can apply business acumen afterwards, it will be insanely successful. So I tend to look for that. And with statistics, uh, whenever I get into it, I usually try to think about what is my actual, my actual market potential that's being worked with. And that's very difficult because a lot of people, they tend to go through and they think through whenever they're creating a business plan or they're creating you know, an argument for why a business should exist. They think about the connection of all the types of people they could sell it to. And if they could just sell it to 1% of the market, if they could just 1% market share of this giant industry. And it simply doesn't work that way. And usually the way to look at it is through what is the probability of someone latching onto and purchasing your product over a period of time that roughly aligns with your expense layout. So that's a whole another long <laughs> derived discussion. <laughs> and I, I've seen and read books and I've, I've teach strategic planning as well. I mean, this is something I teach at a college level. I've taught it. But there's at no point in time have I ever been able to put my finger on one element alone that is like some sort of magic secret sauce, this business will succeed or fail. But there are some red flags and there are also some green flags along the way. And, and I'll tell you that, that one that connects with analytics the most tends to be whenever there is a large niche that exists or is developing that somebody is passionate about and has not yet been fully considered are really well taken care of, especially by major players in the market. So that sometimes there's a need that's been taken care of, but it's just not being taken care of very well. So that's where you get some of these niche products that just run wild because they address the problem better. They do it because someone is passionate and even though it's it's there, they're they're doing they're going to they're they'll do more with it. So I think about things like for climbers, whenever, you know, some climbers, they, are, they started going through and creating toad shoes. And you see all these types of products that come out that are ingeniously innovative and sound silly almost whenever you look at them at first. Yeah, have you ever looked at something, like a product and gone, mm -hmm. well, that's not going to work. And then you yeah. come to find out and it's a multi-million dollar idea and you start scratching your head like, who is buying this? And it's really that kind of thing I found is easier to determine than you'd think. It's, it's just making sure that you can apply what that market analysis looks like prop properly because you can't do it from the perspective of, 
well, there's 30 million of these things being sold every day in the United States. They're just trying to get 1% of this. Well, it's like, what's what's your angle? What are you actually doing? And And what's the market look like? Yeah, sometimes it's a it's a dying market. Sometimes there are people that are buying things and it's not like there's a lot of reason for them to change. No matter what kind of innovation is performed, there's not really reason for them to change over to it. You know, if you created a better tire tomorrow, the number of people that would go out and actually change their tires to so, say, "Oh, wow, the excitement around tires right now. Everybody go out and let's let's go let's go buy some of these tires." I mean, <laughs> people people wouldn't do it you know yeah i put a finger mm-hmm. on it i mean people would wait until they have flats or they need new tires and they finally oh yeah now maybe a few car guys might you might be able to and that's where you get it is where it's like what niche can you pull inside of that because the contracts are already set for who is you know firestone bridgestone those got you got a whole line of tires that are being produced that are contract based and being put on vehicles every day you're not going to break into that very easily and even if you did, what are you trying to accomplish that would actually excite a customer to go out and buy it? So those kinds of things are difficult. How do you build a great team? How do you find those people that can push the idea forward and are passionate about it? <laughs> well, this might sound cliche, but everybody talks about building a team, but they want to find people who are already more than capable to fit the positions that they're looking for. Whenever the best people I've ever found are the people who are very passionate about the very thing you're working on. They're passionate. Sometimes they don't know much about it. Uh, I had a friend who once went out and started a hydroponics. I don't know what to call it besides hydroponics. And this is a large greenhouse where they're selling everything from tomatoes to peppers all year round. And it was amazing what they were doing. She got into it without knowing anything about it. It was passion project purely derived out of just pure energy, no business plan set down, and then wildly successful with it. So, really? Yeah. So there's things like that that I see because it's a it's a niche. It doesn't exist anywhere locally. You think about farm to table restaurants and how things are seasonal and veg- vegetables are seasonal unless you got a nice you know you got to have some pretty special equipment and wh- there's some ways that you can get around things. But there's there are all sorts of really interesting. Uh, areas that people get involved with that are passion projects that become something successful but a lot of them have people that were not experts in their field until they took the plunge and and there's so many there's so many startups that are great startups because they have a team of individuals who have been there since the beginning or they've been there for th- you know, 13, 14 years, they've, they've been through all the hardships. They know what it's like. And the company is set up well because there's a whole team behind them that believes in the, the, the dream. And they believe in the person who started the company. They believe in the product. They believe in everything. Every piece that goes together is a part of who they, because you think about it, whenever we go to work every day, it's like, what are we doing? We're spending our time and our energy for either you can you can treat it as just spending all your time, energy, and emotions on getting a paycheck, or you can think about it as really trying to purpose and create something more, even though it's temporary, create something more for your family and for everyone that you touch in that business to change things around you, to affect the environment in some way. And that's why everybody wants to be a part of something bigger, really. And if you can do that through your business and if you can get people to believe on it, building your team, I think we should stop looking at people who have very specific skill sets 
And there are skills that are required, obviously. You can't hire somebody who isn't a software developer and be like, hey, I want you to be a software developer. And they go, I've never developed anything. And be like, okay, mm-hmm. well. <laughs> right, but so, there's a middle ground. There is a middle ground of, do I want the best software developer for my startup? No, stop thinking about it like that. Get the guy who is not all the way there, but believes in you and believes in your product, your mission, what you're trying to do. And they will be the biggest asset to you. They'll work harder for you. They'll be more to you. And those companies that have those individuals as a part of their teams, those are the ones that, I mean, you want to latch on to them as soon as possible. They do so well. And I've seen some partnerships generated to where in two, three years, businesses just skyrocket. And they start having, you know, all of a sudden the growth is so much they can't even handle it. And it's not like they had unique, even sometimes they didn't have unique ideas. They just went after a business and they were like, well, we're better at Christmas, you know, customer service. That's what we're better at. And you go, you're just better at customer service? Yeah, but the difference is really that they have a team who cares about what they're doing. And it's 30 people who are all on the same page and care about it so much and so passionately that it really does. It changes everything. Their company culture is unbelievable. It's like something you'd see out of the movies or you know, it feels unreal. In our pre-call, we were talking about psychological marketing principles. And sort of the idea of understanding that, you know, there's, there's human behavior, there's, there's patterns and uh, ways that, that people respond. Um, you know, we, we all know this in the political realm. This has been a big thing. Um, so I actually want to ask about the religious realm and the idea of advocacy and how to share your ideas and we actually had a really interesting discussion about it. Um, so I want to I want to ask you: Are what are the similarities between uh, religion and different psychological marketing principles? Yeah, and full disclosure, I'm not going to proselytize or anything, but I I do preach from time to time, so I see these types of connections that I I feel people maybe it it just it's so unique, but at the same time. It just seems so relative to not, I almost can't not mention it, you know? So I, whenever it comes to things like the elaboration likelihood model or anything that's in marketing, a lot of the things that are in marketing have to do with developing this idea that you're trying to sell someone on the quality, the, the brand itself, you know, what it, what kinds of emotions it evokes and how it drives a certain consumer response. And whenever it comes to what I see psychologically from individuals, from a religious perspective, there are all types of different faiths that utilize the same kind of behaviors that we try to model in customers. Uh, And it's, it's a strange thing to consider. For instance, whenever someone is trying to convert someone else, you know, it's very rare. You don't get a lot of success whenever you're trying to convert somebody by just going and just hammering them and saying, you know, you've got to be converted. You've got to be converted. That, that doesn't work. Uh, what, what actually works is giving people that open and having an honest discussion and saying, these are the reasons. These are the reasons. Giving them things to think about. And a lot of it becomes a, a self-searching method of converting someone to something. And I think this is interesting because a lot of brand ambassadors and this idea of even taking influencers and sending them a product 
and seeing how they respond to the product. And sometimes they're not even paid to respond to the product in a particular way. They're just given the product. And it's like, hey, we're going to send this to them and see how they respond. And whenever those individuals, they take it, they go, wow, you know, this, this works. And they'll say things like, I'm not even being paid to say these types of things. And that has so much impact whenever you see something. And it, it sometimes is just completely out of the ordinary, like a celebrity will be utilizing something and it's just naturally their go-to what they, you know, the soft drink they like to drink or something like that. It's something completely normal and people will buy it because they trust that individual and then they'll try it for themselves. And those are the types of, and brand ambassadors have this unique job, is a good way to put it, uh, to influence individuals. But it's all through trying to express the value of the product or service in trying to con convert other people and we even call this conversions you know we talk about uh, how many you know positive yeah, impacts and marketing conversions, conversions. Yeah. <laughs> right and so a lot of it's even the same kind of terminology <laughs> that you that you utilize in in the religious space and it, it's just in an ambassador i always think about a uh, brand ambassador i'm like why can't we, we just rename them call them like brand disciples or something they're really it's like they're following a a very particular set of rules, but they're trying to convict other people to believe in that product the same way that they do. Because you don't want a brand ambassador who doesn't believe in what they're touting. You know, I mean, that just comes across as disingenuous and you'll never, you'll never get anything sold through. They do more damage than anything. Um, it's like paying uh, an influencer once again. You can tell whenever influencers are just paid to be like, it's a great, it's a great product. You know, like, you're really not selling me. Like, this is not, it's whenever you see that person using it day in and day out. And every time that you tune into their live stream or something, it's the piece of equipment they're using. Or It's the, yeah, the microphone from Joe Rogan, uh, Joe Rogan's <laughs> podcast has become, I see it on other podcasts now. I think it's a Shure SM78, actually, believe it. <laughs> I think that's the exact model. Strange enough, I am sold on sure microphones because of how many podcasts utilize that microphone strange that you brought that up and it happened to me i had the same experience to where i'm watching all these people and the strangest thing that happened to me with this is i was looking for microphones and i saw the shape of the microphone that's utilized in a lot of podcasts that i watch and it's that sure sm78 that kind of it has this longer body kind of flat, kind of almost to a cone, but then it's cut off. It's a specific shape to it. So whenever I saw that, I, it immediately resonated with me. That is a microphone that I want. And in religion, there's a lot of this to where you almost become, it becomes natural to accept the things that look like and feel like they are or should be a part of something that you need to believe in or that you want to believe in. And the hard thing about religion is self-examination. And that's difficult with brands too and products. We, we have all sorts of negative names that we give to people who believe in a product, even though you know it's the worst product. If you've ever dealt with somebody like this, I have some friends that believe in products from certain companies that I cannot stand. Kraft Mac and <laughs> Cheese. <laughs> no, man. Oh, you start on mac. I can't stand any mac and cheese just about. <laughs> yes. There's some people who are like, it is the best. And you Ooh, ramen noodles. <laughs> well see, I, I've got I've got a couple. I'd hate to bring up the companies or anything, but there's just there's just some some things that I just I don't like. And it's it's personal yeah. preference, 
But some of them, I think they don't do a self-examination of, <laughs> you know, my friend, I've got good friends. So I could, I'd say it straight to their face, but sometimes they don't do a self-examination of, I like this product or I don't like this product because simply a bias of my experiences collectively rather than evaluating it for whether or not it is beneficial or not. And, and people, the, that's what we try to, in religion and trying to convert people, it's a lot of it is trying to get people to self-examine, but also examining yourself and being like, am I saying or doing things that I just believe because of a collective experiential bias that I have? And that's, it's so difficult to cut through all of that. But you see it in marketing, branding, people that believe in products. And the most beautiful thing is whenever you get someone who is a self-examiner, who utilizes a product or is involved, um, just over, you know, overboard, just loves a particular product, but knows what all it is good and not good for. It's so awesome whenever you have somebody who sells a product but they know whenever it is not appropriate for certain situations. And some people, they want to be all things to everyone. But the reality of it is that you have to know where the limits are and what the rules are to the game. Because even like those, you know, uh, you mentioned microphones. There are certain microphones that just aren't good at picking up all the types of instrumental ranges you might want. But they're great podcasting ma mics because they're, you know, the way that they pick up, they're hypercardioid or, you know, the, the way that they're structured. It makes good sense. Picks up your voice perfect, but you might not want to use them for a grand piano. When you join something um, and they don't let you kind of leave freely, that would increase the, the uh, likelihood of somebody having a prolonged negative experience, right? Like think about gym memberships. If you want to cut out early, you got to, it's going to, they, they're going to almost punish you. <laughs> I mean, you, they, they, they gamify it in that sense. Um, and a, a lot of businesses do this. Um, and so I would say that that is also kind of something you have to strike a balance with because there should be some sort of incentive for somebody to stay, but it shouldn't be, so much that it causes like an unnecessary negative reaction in uh, in a customer, right? After after they join, there should be that free ability to um, go back. But we see a lot of the time businesses don't do this. Like cars, you drive it off the lot. It doesn't matter if you want to give it back. You're going to lose a bunch of money. Um, so and and that's a really big decision. That's like you know, or or a house. Um, that one houses are a little better because you can you can resell the house. You can even make money on it. Um, so there's almost like an opt out in that sense. Um, and in, even in religion, there's, you know, there's no contract. You, you don't have to sign up for 10 sessions. Um, and I think that that helps the case for um, transferring because people are less worried um, that once they start, they can't get out. Yeah. Yeah, it's very difficult to put a finger on it. In, in analytics, I know we've talked a lot about, about a lot of things that you can't exactly measure. And I always loved how Edward Deming, he, father of quality, he always would say, you can't manage what you can't measure. And there's so much truth to it. And then at the same time, there are so many things that you have to manage that you can never measure. And I, I'm becoming more obsessed in analytics and identifying what I know I can't measure 
and you you even mentioned some of the things the the idea of an opt out in contracts whenever they're written between companies it's very clearly defined you know every lawyer wants to say well i want as much <laughs> risk aversion as possible so they in, they have the most inclusive language as possible uh, to protect themselves and then they want to make sure the terms are set up in such a manner that you know, even down to the should damages be incurred we don't want any lawsuits going beyond a certain amount and on and on and on and all of that if if imagine if all of life were treated like those types of contracts <laughs> i mean that's about the only way that you could really start to measure the likelihood or the the desire for people to be involved in certain things or buy certain products if they came with these 40 page long terms of service contracts that you had to sign that uh, came out with opt out a whole opt out clause and how likely they are to accept it you know there's just there's not really a good way to measure some of these things and sometimes people are perfectly fine with the opt out that i i just don't understand you know, not having an opt-out. There's there's sometimes where people get involved in things. Well, one of them was with electric cars. I always look at people, and I'm so glad that people want to buy the first round of electric cars that are being developed. But I, as I've told other people, if I, if I just had um, a lot of disposable income and were into that, I suppose I could see myself engaging in buying what was the t- Tesla Model 1 or you know, Ford has a uh, truck coming out. The light, I think it's Lightning that's going to be coming out uh, next, or maybe it's this year now. Yeah, it's 2022. Crazy. <laughs> but there, there's some individuals that are engaged in that and want those types of things whenever they're the first iteration of the product. And I don't know if it's because of my opt-out needs but I or my fear of the unknown once again. But I very rarely am the first person to jump onto a product in its first iteration because I have this fear that it's going to break or fall apart on me and then I have to deal with a warranty or it's going to break on me. Knowing my luck, I'm one of those people to where it's two days after the warranty expires and then it all falls (laughs) apart. And so I like, as soon as the warranty expires, I just keep on going, when are you going to break? When are you going to (laughs) break? And that's not a fun thing to be in whenever you're a customer is relying on something like a warranty to, you know, basically tell you, well, this is how long it's guaranteed it'll last. (laughs) That's what it feels like sometimes. It just doesn't feel good. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. So you're saying that the balance between letting a customer walk away and having a contract based sort of thing. This is the realm of analytics that is still very gray, um, still requires a human touch, somebody who understands contracts and understands um, basically the, the legal protection needed for, for the business to remain functional. Um, that, you know, that's a, that's a huge uh, kind of mental uh, puzzle. To, to solve um so yeah i definitely hear you the human touch is needed the human touch is needed i love that phrase and i say that quite often and i mean we could talk about ai anything under the sun once again we go back to autonomous cars we could go back to anything and through everything i always i i keep on hearing whenever humans will be replaced in certain capacities and although that's true to a certain extent there's always the human touch is always needed and i i think the reason for that not to get philosophical or go down a whole nother rabbit hole 
But I think the reason for that is because no matter how complex the system is that we make, the inputs themselves are so varied and they change. They're so dynamic that no machine, no thing that we develop can compensate for the changes that occur in both our culture and the direct inputs from other individuals that we cannot compensate for. There's no way to compensate for them. I think about things like when I was a kid, who would have ever thought that a talking uh, thing called a Furby would have been the sensation and been you know the hot, hottest selling item and you look back at it and you're like really that was the toy and then like, everybody wanted this thing I'm like yeah yeah believe it or not these these were cool <laughs> you, were, you were you were cool if you had one of these you know i think about things like uh, another one that was interesting uh, beanie babies you know i go back through products sometimes and i think why what was it i mean it's not like somebody just came in and was like hey i've got an idea guys it's the first one ever it's a bean-filled animal. Everybody's like, wow, well, that hasn't been done before. Uh, plastic pellets, this is great. You know, this is completely different. We've never tried it. You know, it's, it's, kind of, it's, it's almost silly to think what some of those business meetings may have been like, but I get back into it all, and I think through it, and I just go, this is why human touch is always needed because we can't predict for certain things, and a lot of it is cultural, but... Even further than that, a lot of it is other human input that cannot be really completely predicted. I mean, if people every all the time are like, well, we're just about to World War Three or, you know, there's all these horrible things that people will predict or who could have predicted something like Chernobyl occurring? You know, you could write a statistical novel, novel of statistics and analytics saying what the likelihoods are of just the right things going wrong at just the right time. And the reason why nobody expected it is because everybody assumed that all of the safety precautions were in place that were necessary to stop these things. And it had been modeled that there's no way these things can happen if we're engaging in these types of behaviors. But what happens? Somebody doesn't engage in those type of behaviors. And whenever they don't or they don't you know, accommodate for changes properly, then bad things happen. And that's the that's the hardest thing is that the human touch is always necessary because everything has the human touch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and to go back to the Beanie Babies, you know, I had Beanie Babies growing up as a oh, kid, yeah. and cool. I I loved them. <laughs> yeah, I did too. I loved them. I slept with them. <laughs> I did they, too. They were my stuffed animals, <laughs> and and that that's what we were talking about. It's it's creating a product that people love, even if that is a child, you know, creating a toy that a child loves. Um, that's the kind of driver or the currency of a good business is the amount of love that their customers have for the product. And that's like, if you could measure it, it would, it would be an, a model to op just optimize the total volume of love that, that customers have for, for a product optimize the total value of love for a product i want to write some sort of formulaic expression of this <laughs> it's gonna be, it might be nonsensical but i think i think that is a beautiful phrase to try and thank you <laughs> pull yeah. some sort of analytic structure around and just think about what we would need to measure to be able to optimize the value of love for a product yeah i love, yeah. I love that that's great that's what people want i mean and and thank you for for bringing that idea up because that I think that that's very wise and something that we can we can all take away, you know, the listeners, too. Yeah, absolutely.
And I want to thank you for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. I bet we could go on for, for much longer. So I want to thank you. Oh, thank you. This has been fantastic. I could talk to you forever, and I'm sure we're going to be one of the few that have talked about May we may be the first podcast that has talked about beanie babies in 2022. So <laughs> that's true. That's probably true. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you, Jesse, and thank you everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.